Saturday evening, and the universe is much the same as at any other point in the history of the world. The planets and stars orbit and spin and do everything that is expected of them. On Earth, as the sun sets, millions prepare for a weekly event which is far less predictable. In 63 countries around the world, dozens of lottery machines spin hundreds of lottery balls. It takes seconds for the winning numbers to be selected, seconds for the losers to realize they've lost. But for the winners, it is an event which will undoubtedly change their lives forever. Just to remind you, if you can match six numbers on the and ball line in ticket tonight, you could win your trousers. jackpot, details oh, of which darn. will follow as mentioned in Roundoff. Here's Alan Fergus, our independent observer this evening. Alan is from Stokescroft Financial Services, and we're very honoured to have him here with us tonight. And there's all your numbers, numbers 1 to 42, poised and ready over the draw Annie, drum. Annie, bring me my apple tart, and yeah? we're ready now for a weekend Get long. Yourself. We start the draw drum now, release all 42 numbers. Now we'll start the selection. And there's a lot of start. As we wait for the first number to come from the draw drum. And our first number is... 19. Oh, yes, there she 19. goes. Number 19. Annie, come in. Bring me my tarts. We've got That's the first number. one. It's number 40. Jeepers, Annie. Can you believe it? I got the second. Our third number is number 4. Oh, look four. at that girl. Here's our fourth number 7. Can you believe it, Annie? Number 7. Will you come in out of that? We got the first four. Our fifth number here is 25. 25. Annie, we've got it. She's joking. That's five. God help us. God help us. And now here's the sixth number. 29. 29. Yes. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. It is so good to be with you today. I've been uh, out of the country the last couple of weeks. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that uh, later on in the message. But uh, first, let me explain what's going on in that clip we just watched. It's part of the opening scene of a really cute and clever and hilarious and sometimes even poignant film. Uh, it's an Irish film called Waking Ned Divine. Sometimes I show clips from movies and say I do not recommend this uh, film. I highly recommend Waking Ned Divine. Anyone 10 and older, I think, you're going to enjoy this. Um, the, the story of the film is the friendship between these two uh, gentlemen. Uh, Jackie O'Shea, you just shot, saw him in the opening clip. He doesn't win the lottery, but he does get his apple tart. And then his buddy, Michael O'Sullivan, does not win the lottery either. But they find out that somebody in their small coastal Irish village of Tullymore 
is the winner of the lottery. There's only 52 people in town, so they figure we're going to figure out who this is really quick, and uh, we're going to become really good friends with them so that maybe they'll be generous with us. They find out it's Ned Devine who's won the lottery, but poor Ned, when he sees he's holding the winning lottery ticket, he has a heart attack and he dies. And so the plot of the... It's just a movie. He didn't really die. Um, <laughs> Jackie and Michael decide, let's convince the now 51 people in our community that Michael is Ned Devine, and we'll trick the lottery officials, and they'll give us Ned Devine's money, and we'll divide it amongst everyone in town. And so this great lie is what's permeating uh, the entire film. And, and what you see as people are trying to keep a lie going, things get really complex, as people are trying to get a lie going, uh, relationships get harmed and damaged along the way. But it seems to me the point of the film is a reminder that the people of Tullymore need, and it's a reminder that we all need. What is it that matters most in life? And of course, that's relationships. And Jesus would say something very similar. At the end of Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, after he's done all of his incredible teaching, he, he does the Sermon on the Mount, and he just gives us really uh, great wisdom on how to live life. And remember what he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Anyone who hears these words of mine and then does what I say, they're wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. So Jesus has all this incredible teaching, all these miracles and in incredible displays of power and right up at the point, right before he's about to be arrested and killed, uh, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, yeah, all, all that teaching and all those miracles is great, Jesus, but we've got the Jewish religious law. I mean, you open up the Jewish scriptures and it's one commandment after another, and Jesus, we need to know, surely the commandments matter. Which commandment is most important? And Jesus says there's actually two. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then for everyone who is there, who, for everyone who is listening to what Jesus is saying at this point, Jesus says, here's why these two commandments are the most important. It's on the screen, Matthew 22, verse 40. Read this out loud with me. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. There's something really great about Jesus. He, he has a way of simplifying things for us. We're really good at complicating things. We're really good at complicating life, particularly comp uh, complicating what does it look like to live a life of faith. And Jesus shows up and he simplifies things. He doesn't make it easy, but he simplifies things and says, here's really the heart of the matter. The whole point of the scripture, the whole point of the scripture is to grow in love of God and others. Uh, you're going to hear us talking about this quite a bit over the next month or so as we come to the end of 2022 and we get ready to kick off uh, New Year 2023. The theme at Hope, at all of our campuses of Hope for 2023, is going to be the whole Holy Bible in a year. The whole Holy Bible in a year. So we're going to preach through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation next year. I mean, if you think our sermons are long now, just wait <laughs> until 20. No, uh, we'll, we'll keep them short, but then throughout the week, we'll have additional tools for you. We'll have daily devotions. We'll have a, a Bible reading plan. If you do want to read through the Bible cover to cover, maybe just want to focus on the Old Testament this year. Or maybe just focus on the New Testament this year. We'll have a, a reading track for that. Uh, we'll have classes where you can dig in deeper into the Word of God as an individual, as a, a small group, a part of a community. 
And the hope is, the goal, by this time next year, we will be more biblically fluent as a congregation. We want to be more biblically fluent as a congregation. Again, this is important. The goal is not to you know, check something off a spiritual to-do list and to say, I finally read through the Bible cover to cover. Uh, the, the goal is not to get enough information into us that we're going to do really well at a Bible trivia contest. That would be missing the point. Instead, the idea is we believe as we engage with God's word, as we get the word of God into us, God's word has the power to change us, to, to help us grow so that we can grow in our love of God, we can grow in our love of our neighbor. And that's the hope for next year, focusing in on the Word of God, the whole Holy Bible in a year. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean that this year we're not really concerned about the Bible. Of course we are. And we've been in this message series the the last couple of months looking at the Ten Commandments. And again, remember, the first commandments, they all deal with our relationship with God. They help us grow in our love of God, and then the rest of the commandments uh, deal with our relationship with our neighbors and and the people closest to us. How do we grow in love of neighbor? It's kind of the heart of what Jesus is saying. Uh, These two commandments, these two ideas, everything, it points to this kind of life. And it shows us how to do life in the best way possible, the, the best way of life for us and for the people around us. So we're at commandment eight this weekend. It's the Ten Commandments in nine weeks. Next week, we'll get the final two. So commandment eight, sometimes we think of it as thou shalt not lie, but that's not actually uh, the language that the scripture writers use. It shows up a couple different places. Exodus 20, verse 16 is one of them. Again, let's read this out loud together. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. Some of the older English translations will say, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. You hear some legalese in there. This is the kind of language that a lawyer might use or the kind of language that you might hear uh, if you're in a courtroom, if you're in front of a judge, witnessing and testifying and that sort of thing. I have only had to take the witness stand one time in my life. Uh, When my wife Wendy and I moved to Oregon so I could go to seminary, we took a job as house parents at a group home. And and it was a group home, it was a dual diagnosis facility, which meant the residents, the clients of that particular home, uh, they had to be diagnosed with both a mental illness and an addiction to drugs and alcohol. And so the first year that I was in seminary, we lived in this house in the western suburbs of Portland, Oregon, and Wendy and I had one of the bedrooms, and then the five or six clients or residents of that house who were participating in that program, they had uh, the other bedrooms. And we cooked meals for them, uh, we ate together, we dispensed meds, we took them to places where they could purchase the essential items that they needed, we took them to the places where they were gonna get the treatment that they needed as part of that program. At one point, it was pretty clear that one of the residents, this program wasn't the best fit for this particular person. And in order to get them out of our program and into the right program, we had to go through the legal system. So Wendy and I had to go to the county courthouse one day. And we had to sit in the courtroom and wait for the attorney to call our names. And then we had to go and we had to uh, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth as we sat in the witness stand. I got to tell you, it was a nerve-wracking experience for me. I've watched too many courtroom dramas. I was convinced the 25-year-old public defender was going to use me as a boost to his career, and I was going to end up in jail at the end of that. I was like, what is going on? I was sweating. It was awful. But I survived. It makes me wonder, it's maybe part of the reason 
Uh, God asks the biblical writers to use this kind of language of witnessing and testifying and courtroom and legalities, that God wants us to understand that every conversation in our life, every encounter that we have with people, every relationship in our life, it's a big deal. And maybe as we speak to people, about people, we should have this understanding that there is a judge who is watching, who is listening, who's paying attention to not just the words we speak, but also our nonverbal cues. And to testify falsely, to speak falsehoods, would be a really, really big deal. Because whether you're on the witness stand or not, it is a really, really big deal. And the Bible talks about the importance of truth and the importance of honesty all over the place. One of the places is in... uh, Psalm chapter 15. I want to read just a little bit how Psalm 15 begins. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts, those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. This is a psalm of King David And and part of what I've been thinking about as I've been looking at Psalm 15 this week is it seems like David is making a connection. He's saying there's a relationship between the way we speak about people in our lives and our sense of feeling close to God. Who, Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who speak the truth from sincere hearts. I talk to a lot of people who tell me, Pastor Scott, I just don't feel close to God. God feels distant. God uh, feels absent. And there's all kinds of reasons why we go through times, we go through seasons where that's kind of the reality of our faith. But part of what we have to pay attention to, part of what David asks us to pay attention to, perhaps sometimes in our life, the reason God seems distant, far off, is because we're not doing a good job with the truth. Perhaps we're engaging in too much gossip. Thou shalt not lie. And I think most of us would say, yeah, of course. If I know the truth and I choose to uh, tell a lie instead, if I know the truth but I, I choose, to, choose to spread a falsehood, that's, that's not good. It's not good for me. It's not good for anyone. It's not good for society. But over and over again, part of what we see the biblical writers doing is asking us to Uh, enlarge our understanding, expand our understanding, broaden our understanding just a little bit. And we see it here in Psalm 15, but it shows up in other places in the Bible too. When we gossip, we break the eighth commandment. When we gossip, we break the eighth commandment. And think about how easy it is for us to do this. You're sitting around with your friends, you're tailgating or you're watching a game, Uh, You've got a neighborhood book club, or a card club, or a poker night, or you you get together with your church small group. No, it would never happen in a church small group. Your family gathers together for a holiday meal, and at some point the conversation just kind of drifts, and somebody says, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? And somebody else says, no, I didn't hear. Fill me in. What's the scoop? Well, I heard from Susie who told me, uh, Jimmy told her that Johnny was doing A, B, or C. 
and we sit there at secondhand information at best, sometimes it's third or fourth hand information, may or may not have any bit of truth to it, and we just lap it up as though it's our daily entertainment. What do you want to do today for entertainment? You want to watch a game? You want to play a game? You want to go to a concert? I know, let's sit around and let's gossip about our neighbors. Are you not entertained? How about how you engage with social media and adults and young people alike? This is a real danger zone for us. Do you, do you use your TikTok and Snapchat to encourage others, to lift others up? Or do you use it to sp spread rumors and gossip and tear others down? Don't bear false witness, the scripture says. Don't engage in harmful deceit and gossip. But think bigger, think broader than this. Uh, I, I figured this was one I don't really have an issue with, so I asked my wife, Wendy, yeah, I don't really lie, do you? And she said, oh, Scott, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> no, you speak the truth, but you conveniently leave out a detail here or there. So if we go back, we would have to say what you said was true, but it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And, and by leaving out that detail, there's something deceptive about that, and it's not cool. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one who struggles with that. Anyone besides me notice there seems to be an uptick in conspiracy theories lately and an uptick in the number of people who are believing conspiracy theories? Uh, it, there's been an uptick so much so that uh, academia, they're studying this. They're researching it now. They're doing studies, um, trying to figure out why. Where are all these conspiracy theories coming from? And maybe even more importantly, why are so many of us believing them, buying them? I was reading an article by this woman, Melinda Winner Moyer. It's in Scientific American. And she's pointing out, here's one study that they did. Here's another study that somebody else did, study after study, trying to get to the heart of what makes people believe conspiracy theories. And after she's kind of explained each of the studies that they've done and what's going on there, here's kind of her summary statement. She writes, when feelings of personal alienation or anxiety are combined with a sense that society is in jeopardy, people experience a kind of conspiratorial double whammy. It's like when people feel powerless, when, when there are things going on in our life or uh, in culture and society uh, that, that feel out of our control, we're powerless to do anything about it. When we feel uh, isolated and alone and when anxiety levels are on the rise, sound familiar? say hello to the last five years, it makes us much more likely to believe conspiracy theories. And, and here's part of what's fascinating about it. Um, when we feel powerless and anxious, we believe conspiracy theories. But then when we believe conspiracy theories, it makes us feel even more powerless and more anxious. It's kind of a horrible cycle. Uh, there's a woman named Karen Douglas. She is a social psychologist at the University of Kent over in England. She's also the director of something called Conspiracy FX. Conspiracy FX, where they look at the consequences to culture, to society, when people are uh, buying and spreading conspiracy theories. Here's part of what she says. It can snowball and become a pretty vicious, nasty cycle of inaction and negative behavior. Uh, Christian and secular scholars alike will tell us the, the central focus of the teaching of Jesus is something called the kingdom of God. 
The time promised by God has come at last. Uh, Repent of your sins and believe the good news, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is here. And, And Jesus does all this work over these three years of announcing, proclaiming, and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. What you know about Jesus' teaching around the kingdom of God, would you say what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God sounds a lot like a nasty cycle of inaction and negative behavior? Absolutely not. In fact, this is a pretty good description of the antithesis of the kingdom of God. And so when people of faith, when when Christians are spending a lot of time buying into conspiracy theories, we're actually moving the opposite direction that Jesus wants us to move in the kingdom of God, which is a movement of positive action in our world. This is something that is not new to God, this idea of conspiracy theories. It's not just the last decade that God's been uh, interested or concerned in conspiracy theories. You go back 700 years before the birth of Jesus, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God warns us the problem with conspiracy theories. This is Isaiah chapter 8. I'll start reading in verse 11. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. It's the Old Testament, but it sounds a lot like the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans Uh, Do not conform to the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. For people of faith, there is a thought life, there is a thought pattern that is completely different than the way most people in our world think. The Lord's given me a strong warning not to think like everybody else does. The Lord said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do, and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Speaking in broad generalities, what's at the heart of a conspiracy theory is a belief that people might have that there's a small group of influential, powerful, probably wealthy people, and they're the ones that are pulling all the strings. And they're the ones that are controlling everything. The small group of powerful people, they're the ones that, it's not the government, it's really somebody else who's in charge of what's going on in our culture, in charge of the stock market, in charge of the economy, in charge of military things that happen. It's a small group of people, they're the ones with power, and they want to use their power to make life miserable for us. That's kind of the heart of conspiracy theory. So here's what I want us to do just for a second. Let's pretend like that's reality. The Illuminati is controlling everything, people. Let's just pretend for a second that that's true. Small group of people, powerful people, they're running everything. What would be a uh, faithful next thought for followers of Jesus? Got a small group of people, powerful, influential people, they're controlling everything. What would be a faithful next thought for followers of Jesus? God is bigger. God is more powerful. God's the one who's really in charge and in control. And God is more than capable of making sure that God's purposes and God's plans for my life and for this world prevail. Do not live in dread of what frightens everybody else. Be people of faith. And the wisdom of God goes on in verse 13 and 14, and we'll put that up on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He's the one you should fear. 
He's the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. Part of the reason we lie is because we don't feel safe. We we lie as a way of somehow maintaining control. We think something bad is going to happen if the truth gets out, and so we lie. Don't lie, don't bear false witness, don't gossip, don't uh, speak half-truths, don't buy into conspiracy theories. Instead, trust the Lord. Trust that he's the one who will keep you safe. You know, the scriptures point us to this uh, truth over and over and over again. God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Why should I be afraid? Lord is my rock, my fortress, my strong tower. The Lord will keep me safe. And when we trust that that's who God is, when we take God at God's word, trust that God's going to keep us safe, it actually sets us free to be more truthful. And as we as individuals become more free uh, to speak the truth, then we start to develop a more truthful community, a more truthful, uh, honest culture a more trustworthy society. And this is kind of where the rubber hits the road with this commandment and and who we are as a church. When we bear false witness, we lose our witness. Let me say that again. When we bear false witness, we lose our witness. I'll try to explain what I mean by that. Uh, We have a mission and a vision here at Hope. Here's our mission. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. This is all about being a witness in our world. Like, I have a story about what God has done for me, what God has done in my life, how I've experienced uh, God's grace and God's love and God's power in my life. And this idea is to be an evangelist, to share that story, be willing to share that story with the people in your life, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your coworkers. This is what our mission is all about. It's about having a witness in the world. We also have a vision statement as a church. It's on the screen, and let's read this out loud together. Powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. And so what you see when you look at the mission and vision we believe God has given us here, it will be very difficult for us to carry out our mission and vision if the people around us do not trust us, if they don't know if we are uh, telling the truth if they are convinced that somehow we are uh, speaking in half-truths or lies. When you bear false witness, you lose your witness, or to frame that in a positive sense, when you do the hard work of developing a trustworthy reputation, that's when you begin to have an effective witness in the world. I spent most of the last two weeks in South Africa, and our mission partner in South Africa is an organization called Blessman International. Blessman's been on the ground in South Africa for over two decades, and they've been doing the long, slow, patient, challenging work of building a trustworthy reputation. I mean, South Africa is a fascinating place. It's a fascinating culture. Uh, We arrive, we fly into Johannesburg, and then we drive about uh, three hours north of Johannesburg to a province called the Limpopo province. If you know your South African history at all, uh, you're probably aware of apartheid. From the 1940s to the 1990s, apartheid was the law of the land, and apartheid meant it was legal to mistreat, to abuse, to oppress someone based on the color of their skin. 
And so the white settlers, they uh, robbed the land. They stole the land from the uh, black natives. And then they forced many of the black natives to move into these uh, resettlement camps. Apartheid ended in the 90s. Nelson Mandela became the prime minister. And for the last 30 years, they've tried really hard to uh, create a more just and equitable country. It's a challenge, super difficult, hard work. And, and part of the way they're doing it in South Africa is messy and it's working in some ways and it's not working in other ways, but there's multiple layers of authority. So you've got governmental authority. You have a prime minister, you have governors of provinces, you have mayors of cities. So there's that sort of governmental authority. And at the same time, there's a tribal authority. Uh, for the black native South Africans, they're parts of uh, tribes, and so they have a chief. And the chief has kind of equal authority as the uh, mayors and, and as the governors. So Blessman, over the last you know, two decades plus, they've been working hard to build trustworthy relationships with both the government authorities and the tribal authorities, and it's just kind of fascinating to watch how all this plays out. Here are some pictures from our trip. Uh, this picture in the bottom left-hand corner. Uh, we're at a place called the Del Kramer Campus. And the Del Kramer Campus is a plot of land uh, just outside the village of Mokopani that was given to Blessman by the tribal chief. After watching what Blessman was doing in that area for several years, the chief came to Blessman and said, we want to give you land. You don't have to give us anything for it. We're just going to give it to you because we've been watching you and we trust that you're going to do something good for our people on this land that we give you. So they built a, a children's center there. They built a church there. They, they've started a sports ministry there. Uh, what we're doing here every afternoon, the kids leave school and they come, about 100, 150 of them, come to the Del Kramer campus for this after-school program, and we feed them a meal. Now, some of you have packaged meals from Meals from the Heartland here in central Iowa. Those meals get shipped all over the world to places like the Del Kramer campus. And so uh, that food gets cooked and we serve it to those kids. For many of them, it's the only meal that day they know they can count on. Uh, they do, the after-school program includes tutoring and life skills lessons, and it's really cool to see what they're doing there. So that came from a relationship of trust that developed with the tribal chief. They've also developed relationships of trust with schools primarily. And so one of the schools we were at, uh, we did an optical outreach. So uh, people who had never been to the eye doctor before could find out if you uh, needed glasses and we could give them new glasses. Uh, we also did a shoe outreach at one of the schools. In this particular school, they had about 100 uh, elementary age kids that we fitted for new shoes. We washed their feet. They know a little bit of English, so you talk with them a little bit. They told us they picked these 100 kids because they were all orphans. And, and what that means in that part of South Africa, they're orphans because their parents died either from COVID or from HIV AIDS. And when the parents die and they become orphans, they don't go to an orphanage. Instead, there's most of the time a middle school or high school sibling who now takes over as the head of the household. There's a whole house of kids trying to figure out how do we survive day to day. Uh, this bottom corner picture over here on the right is a days for girls outreach at one of the schools and a part of the reality in South Africa uh, a women's menstrual cycle is really taboo and so when girls start having their periods they don't go to school 
when they start having their periods and then all through the rest of school, when it's their period, they just stay home. So think about how much school they miss every month because of that. And uh, they end up not doing as well in school because they can't afford to get the uh, sanitary products that they need, so they just stay home. And uh, it, part of what that means is it makes it really difficult for most women to get good, well-paying jobs when they become adults because they don't do well enough in school. So the Days for Schools program are these washable, reusable feminine hygiene kits that are in a kind of a cool uh, backpack. And the team goes in, and there's someone there who can talk to the girls about what's going on uh, with their bodies, uh, but also how to use these washable, reusable kits. And it's amazing to watch the, uh, the pride and the uh, confidence and the empowerment just in about an hour. They leave that room, those uh, 10, 11, 12-year-old girls, with their chins held high. And the boys say, what's in the backpack? What's in the... And the girls say, I'm not going to... Like, you can see them regaining some power just in that short process. A couple of different times, I got to go and uh, speak at a high school. They have these assemblies to start the day at the high schools. And uh, they assemble all the students outside, and they sing some of their sepeti uh, tribal songs, and then they invite someone to give an inspirational talk. And because of the work that Blessman has been doing, building trust, when we show up, even though they don't have any idea who we are, they know because we're connected with Blessman that they can trust us. And so I got to give the talk. Now, uh, the school year in South Africa is ending. And so November is exam month. And so for the high school students in particular, high stress, high pressure, because how you do on your November exams it determines your future. If you do well enough, you get to advance to the next uh, level in uh, January, and you might get on a college track, a professional track. And if you don't do well, most likely you'll be stuck for a while, and then you'll drop out. And, and they know that the path of not doing well on the exams is going to lead to basically a subsistence kind of life. Just scrambling day after day to survive. High pressure for these students as they take their exams. What do you say to people in that kind of situation that you don't even know? And so I thought, best thing I could do is just remind them that God loves them. We tried to explain where Iowa was. I don't think they understood. But we said, we were in an airplane for 20 hours to get from our home to your home. And uh, as cool as it is to be in an airplane, it's not cool to be in an airplane for 20 hours. It's a long flight, and if you're as big as me, it's really uncomfortable. And if you're sitting next to someone as big as me, it's really uncomfortable for you. But we were willing to travel that distance, I told these students. We were willing to be uncomfortable for a little bit because we wanted you to know that you are loved. And we said, as far as we traveled, as uncomfortable as we were, it's nothing compared to how far God will travel and the discomfort that God will go through to make sure that you know you are loved and God is with you. When I am in South Africa, one of the things that I think of is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is sometimes called the birth of the church. Uh, the Holy Spirit gets poured out on all the people on the, on the day of Pentecost. And I want to just read to you the, this description of the early church at the end of Acts chapter 2. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. 
All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. I want us to read together that uh, end, that part of verse 47. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. It's the third time I've been to South Africa, and we, we drive around from place to place in these vehicles that have the Blessman International logo on them, and it's pretty obvious that that logo is recognizable. And so wherever we are in that particular region, the people welcome us. The people are glad when they see that the Christians are showing up. It's good news when the Christians are showing up. And when I get home, I find myself wondering, is it the same way here? Do our neighborhoods, do our communities, do they feel like it's good news when the Christians show up? I got to Hope in November of 2006, and shortly after getting here, I was reading an article uh, written by a pastor at a church in Florida. And in the middle of the article, he asked a question that I think about pretty regularly. It's a question that sometimes will keep me up at night, but mostly it's a question that inspires me to get up in the morning and to be about the work God's called us to here. The pastor asked this question, if your church ceased to exist, would your community weep? Are you making such an impact in the neighborhoods around your building that people are really glad your church exists, your church is here, your church is doing ministry. If we woke up tomorrow morning and there was no longer a hope in Ankeny, would anyone notice? Would anyone care? Would anyone say, we've lost something valuable? And the parents who bring their kids to the Hope Preschool Monday through Thursday, they'd probably notice. And the people who come on Tuesdays to the cupboard, the emergency food pantry that we have, they'd probably would notice if it was no longer there. And on Wednesday nights when the middle school and high school students show up, like the seventh graders, seventh grade retreat, how was that? Woo! Awesome. Yeah, they'd probably notice. And if you come to worship on the weekend and you couldn't hear a sermon from Ashley or Eli, you'd probably notice, miss that. I think we're on the right kind of path, and I think we still have a lot of work to do. I'm excited about where God's leading us and how God is changing us and growing and who God wants us to be and what God wants us to be about. It was a year ago we were having our giving campaign, uh, Bringing Hope to Life, and you, this congregation, blew me away. You pledged over $2 million so we could complete the new edition without going into debt, so we could purchase five acres along 36th Street in Ash, uh, five more acres of land to do the ministry God's calling us to here for our community. And, and a lot of people wondered, why do we need five more acres? Don't we have enough? And so part of what I encouraged you to do last year, and I'd encourage you to do it again this year, pick up Hope's 10 for 10 vision. We had Hope's uh, 25th birthday back in 2019, and so we said 10 big goals for the next 10 years of ministry we think God's calling us to. And it's things like senior housing and a community center primarily focused on uh, young people. It's things like a, a counseling center, and on and on and on it goes. 
Ways that we can be doing ministry, not just on Saturdays and Sundays when we gather for worship, but all week long that's having an impact in our community that will make people in this community uh, really glad that hope is here. That, that we would become an Acts 2 kind of church and we would enjoy the goodwill of all the people. And here's why this matters. Here's the way uh, Acts chapter 2 ends. It's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It's a good week. It's a holiday week. You're going to be out at gas stations and grocery stores and uh, taking time off from work and from school. It's going to be fantastic. But I really want you, to, I want to challenge you this week, pay attention to your neighbors. Pay attention to their attitudes. Pay attention to their demeanor. Do your neighbors seem hopeful or do they seem overwhelmed? Do they seem anxious? Do they seem scared? Do they seem alone? Do they have hope? Because there's a lot of people all around this church who don't know, who don't know what's the point of all this. They don't know there's a God who loves them. There are people who are going through situations that they feel completely powerless and out of control. There are people I talk to all the time, parents who kids are struggling with something and they don't have any idea what to do to help. Or uh, couples that I talk to, they want this oneness, this closeness, this connection that's supposed to be at the heart of a marriage, but it's just, it's elusive. They don't know what to do. And I talk to people, and, and maybe there's some in the room right now, who are going through life and death kinds of situations, maybe in their own life, maybe in their family, maybe uh, in, in their friend circle. People just facing the kinds of things that rob us of joy, that, that steal our hope, that, that fill us with a doubt that can shake our faith. And so we need a church, and I'm so glad that you're willing to be this kind of church that's on a mission to help people know the saving power of Jesus Christ, the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, the unfailing love of Jesus Christ. And I don't tell you this enough, but I'm proud of you, Hope. We're doing it. we got work to do, but we're doing it. Let's keep going. Let, let's see who God changes us into and how God uses us in this next decade of ministry. One more clip from this movie, uh, Waking Ned Divine. So uh, Jackie and Michael, they convince the whole uh, community to pretend, to lie, uh, that Michael is Ned Divine. But the lottery official says, I have to come and I have to interview people in town to just make sure there's no funny business, nobody's trying to trick us, or that sort of thing. So they're like, how will we know when the lottery official shows up? And they say he sneezes a lot. He's got allergies. So if somebody new in town who's sneezing a lot, that's probably the, the lottery official. And make sure you don't call Michael Michael, you call Michael Ned Devine at, at that point. They also realize they've gotten off track. And, and their priorities have gotten out of whack as they've been making, trying to make this lie come to life. And so instead of focusing on the money, one day they decide they should focus on Ned Devine. And they have a funeral for this guy. And it turns out it's when Jackie O'Shea gives up, gets up to give the eulogy for Ned Devine that the lottery official shows up. Take a look. Look, Satana,
as as we look back on the life of as we look back on on the life of Michael O'Sullivan was my great friend. But I don't ever remember telling him that. The words that are spoken at a funeral are spoken too late for the man that is dead. What a wonderful thing it would be to visit your own funeral. To sit at the front and hear what was said. Maybe to say a few things yourself. Michael and I grew old together. But at times, when we laughed, we grew younger. If he was here now, if he could hear what I say, I'd congratulate him on being a great man and thank him for being a friend. I wonder if part of the wisdom of the Eighth Commandment is for us not to waste our words on lies and deceit and gossip and conspiracy theories, when we can use our words to do that. We can use our words to lift up, to encourage, to empower, and to love. This is what God does for us. God's word does exactly that for us. So let's stand together and let's sing about God's great love. <laughs> 